Welcome to the new National Trust podcast series. I'm Alan Power, head gardener at Stourhead and somebody who's very passionate about everything outdoors. In this series, we'll be exploring the Trust's amazing spaces, delving into the stories and characters that make each place so special. We'll be traveling all around the country from hilltop to seaside. We'll tread sandy paths and the polished wooden floors of country homes, not to mention some spectacular gardens. We'll delight in birdsong, sublime views and exceptionally good cream teas. So join me on this journey and immerse yourself in the wonders of the National Trust. In this episode, we're exploring the magnificent gardens of Cliveden set high above the Thames in Buckinghamshire. Just a stone's throw from London, this enchanting garden has been in the care of the National Trust since the 1940s. Everything about Cliveden exudes grandeur. You know, it's a magnificent garden. Every corner you turn around, there's something unique and special to see. Well, at the moment, I'm standing on the terrace, just outside the Grand House, which overlooks the parterre, an ornamental garden of huge scale that was developed by the renowned gardener, John Fleming. While this area of the garden was developed in the 19th century, it was based on the geometric patterns and traditional knot gardens of the Elizabethan era. The parterre at Cliveden is particularly impressive, with two and a half miles of hedges and topiary and over 30,000 plants, it's no mean feat. My eye is immediately drawn to the parterre. You've got these really strong formal lines of box hedging running down the parterre. And then within that box hedging is, is multicoloured bedding, impeccably laid out. So you can see kind of whites and reds and blues in the first triangular bed. And then you move into the next one and you've got yellows and whites and reds and you know we are so far away from it you know it's hard to tell what those plants are so that gives you an idea of what the scale is and then these beautiful pyramids of yew that just punctuate the parterres you can't see a building or a town or an urban area here from the view that we're standing at I did a very very brief period in my history I came to Cliveden and it was only for about eight or nine months and it's a garden of such scale and deep history that it's hard to connect with it entirely in such a short period of time. But what I really did take away was the variety of people that influenced the place over the years. Today, Cliveden House isn't actually run by the National Trust. It's a luxury hotel, but it can be seen from many parts of the garden and its history is fundamental to this place. I'm here with one of the National Trust's volunteer historians, Mike Bellum, to learn a little bit more about the house and its inhabitants. Well, we're standing at the moment by the Shell Fountain, which Astor put together around about 1900. So, Mike, for, for the listeners out there who haven't seen the spectacular house at Cliveden, can you just describe it from where we are on the drive? Well, from where we are, it's sort of three storeys, goes back to 1670. You've got to remember that Clifton always was used for entertaining. When we say people lived here, they didn't really live here very much. They came here for weekends or weeks in the summer. Hate Day was probably around about the 30s, late 20s, 30s, when you had so many politicians here. You had kings and queens, you had... Franklin Roosevelt was here with his wife. 
Henry Ford, Charlie Chaplin, uh, George Bernard Shaw was a regular visitor, and of course Churchill, uh, English politicians like Balfour, Gandhi was here. But it's often said that uh, events were discussed here and agreed here, which still affect us now, because a lot of politics took place at the country house weekends, and this was one of them. And you, you kind of reeled off an amazing list of visitors and people, but I think one name that's fairly strongly associated with Cliveden is Nancy Astor, isn't it? It is. And can you tell us a little bit about kind of who she was? Well, well, Nancy was from Virginia in the States, and she married a rich New Yorker. And the marriage didn't last very long. He accused her of all sorts of things. She accused him of drunkenness. But eventually she decided that she wanted to travel and came over to England. She was accused at one point of coming over here to find a husband. She's supposed to have said, my dear, if you knew how much trouble it was to get rid of the first one, you wouldn't say that. <laughs> but she met, on the way back on the ship, coming back to England, she met a guy called Waldorf Astor, who was the son of William Waldorf Astor, who owned the place. So, 1906, Waldorf comes back and says, Dad, I want to get married. Dad, being a nice dad, or a sucker, I'm not sure which you want to put it, says, don't worry, son, here's £10 million in Cliveden. I'll go and leave in my other house, Hever Castle. So Nancy was the chatelaine of this place from 1906 until she died in the 1960s. Do you have an insight into what kind of a character she was? Uh, yes, a bit abrasive at times. She was an intriguing character because, I'm sure you know, she became the first female MP to take her seat in the House of Commons. But Nancy was an MP and a husband who was still in the politics, even though he was now Lord Astor, which is why he had to give up his seat in Plymouth. They used it for entertaining their political friends. You know, how was Nancy Astor received in England as a politician when she started? Well, as a politician, no, she was very unpopular. It took about a year before people would speak to her. Churchill apparently once said something along the lines of, well, I was so embarrassed because it felt like I was caught in a bathroom with just a Luther to cover me, having a woman in Parliament. The famous saying was, for Nancy was, Winston, if, if I was your wife, I'd poison you. If I was your husband, I'd take it. You know, that defines some of, the, some of the elements of the lack of empathy between men and women in power in those days. Yeah. You know, and that's one of many examples that took place. But Nancy was Nancy. Now tell me, Mike, the swimming pool's got a little bit of a story behind it, hasn't it? Uh, it has, yes. It's the infamous swimming pool. In 1961, uh, Astor had won some money on the, on the racing and he built himself a swimming pool. And he was doing entertainment for the government. I say for the government because it was, included the president of Pakistan, it included Louis Mountbatten, who was the chief of the imperial staff, and it included John Profumo, minister of war. And he went out for a walk to have a look at the swimming pool, and he came across a couple of young ladies wearing not very much. Profuma rather liked the looks of one of them. Her name was Christine Keeler, and he slipped her his phone number, and her affair started. It wasn't a great passionate affair. wasn't helped by the fact she was also sharing a pillow with the Russian naval attaché, Mr Ivanov. 
Now, for the younger people, they won't understand the paranoia that 1961 Cold War and Russia and the Defence Minister would have. But basically, the big connection was Russia, Cold War, Minister of War, uh, TOFs, all the bits and pieces, all the things that raised paranoia in the country. For a few more, called it off. Two years later, it came out. And it didn't topple the government, but it had a bearing on it, certainly. So one of the major political events was triggered here. So I'm heading off now to meet Andrew Mudge, the head gardener, really just to find out what's going on in all the garden at Cliveden nowadays. Hi, Andrew. Great, Hi, to, Alan. great to, see to see you again. Good to see really, you again. Really nice, yeah. And we're standing here today in the baking heat outside the Rose Garden, and I know that you've been fundamental in sorting the Rose Garden out here, haven't you? We have, yeah, yeah. Very fortunately, um, the Trust many years ago did a, a radio interview with Geoffrey Jellicoe, who designed the first rose garden for the third Lord Astor in 1959. Yeah. So we had a fabulous record. Yeah. And from that record, we've been able to do the restoration of the rose garden, probably as Jellicoe intended. And this is the first time it never got completed. To give you some context, Geoffrey Jellicoe was a prominent garden designer whose creations dazzled the nation throughout the 20th century. He had architectural training and a particular interest in the Italian gardens of the Renaissance. Both influences are clear in his structured and ornate gardens. What Jellicoe had really, really tried to capture was the garden as the sunrise on the, the east there going across to sunset in the west. So the sort of pale yellows going through the, the spectrum to go out the real dark colours on the, the other side. You can really see that. You know, as the sun gets to sort of midday, it's above those real intense reds and um, so forth. And then as it goes over in the later afternoon, you know, it goes into those really scarlet colours representing sunset. And the other clever bit of the design um, that Jellicoe described really well is that your, the garden should envelop you. So when you go into the garden, you've got the taller plants on the outside, the shorter ones in the middle. You can sit on the seats and, and, and just be in, enveloped with the scent, the colour. It's just wonderful. I think what's beautiful about this garden, I mean, we're standing underneath some pine trees. You know, there's some sweet chestnut around, some beech trees. And it feels as if the Rose Garden's in the middle of a, of a woodland, doesn't it? You know, it's backdrop of yew trees. So it's a real oasis of colour in the middle of the woods, isn't it? It, it, it really is. And we've tried to fit it into the original round point in the 18th century landscape. Right. Because that's what this was. And it's had many, many uh, overlays, but this is the one I think that works the best. It's fantastic. Great, great visitor enjoyment. You can hear people in the distance yeah. really enjoying it and talking about the roses and having a good old laugh and chat. And it is a nice place to go and sit and just absorb the atmosphere. Isn't it funny when you enter a garden like this, and I'm sure you walk the way I walk at work, you know, your, your stroll in between points of the garden is quite fast. You get to an area and both of us came in and our pace slowed down. Yeah. Immediately slowed down because you're just observing the colour and inhaling the scent. and Yeah, and just taking it in. Um, you know, it's quite a confined space and it's the design is, is, is what actually makes this garden, you know, so unique, I think. It's the, um, the statues 
the arches in that humanist form, which are the, these are original Jellico designs, um, and the original arches that he intended to go here. Well, I'm a little bit jealous, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you, you, you hit the nail on your head. It's, a, it, it's team effort. Yeah. Team effort. And Jen, who is one of my team, looks after this. I mean, it's a daily um, deadhead. Well, basically, I'm in here nearly all the time. It's been pretty full on since the, uh, since the roses started flowering a couple of weeks ago. So um, every morning before we open, I'm in here deadheading. So, Jen, how many roses in here do you have to deadhead? So we have over 900 individual rose plants in here, something like 44 varieties. But yeah, 900 keeps me busy. <laughs> I bet it does. I bet it does. All done with your secateurs, gently and carefully. Yes, yeah, no, no hedge trimmers in here, not even when we prune. It's all done by secateurs. So all the roses that we have in here are repeat flowers. So as soon as they start flowering this year, they started in May, they will go on right the way through to sort of September, October. I've even seen flowers in December. And we wouldn't have that if I didn't deadhead. So by deadheading every day, certainly during its peak, means that we'll get more roses coming through and more for the visitors to enjoy. Do you have a favourite rose in this amazing collection? I do. I have a number. I would say my favourite is Fellowship, which is the orange one. Um, it's just on the in, inner beds. I like it for a number of reasons, not necessarily for the fragrance, because actually of the roses in here is probably one of the least fragrant. But it's easy to deadhead. <laughs> it's a nice colour and it's got a really lush green leaf as well. So I think that that one works really well in here. I've seen a couple of members of your team out and about today. Some of them, you know, doing the bedding in this heat, you know, working really hard. How many have you got on the team in total? Yeah, there's um, 10 of us all together full time in the garden. So if you work that out, 100 acres, that's 10 acres each. I'm pretty labour intensive, so I don't think we do too bad. But most importantly, we have a great team of volunteers that help us as well. We have 45 plus volunteers that um, join us during the course of the week and we're also training as well we've got a couple of trainees here that are learning the ropes so we want to pass on those skills i'm just approaching a space that's underneath the terrace at Cliveden and really is on underneath the terrace and i'm actually had to stop here because i've been stopped by harris fencing can see scaffolding, ladders, light bulbs strung with yellow cables around here. It's a real work zone. Kind of all sorts of workmen inside this chamber. And I can only describe it as a chamber. And it's quite an intriguing space. I can't go in today because the team are in the throes of restoring this magical space. But it's intriguing because its true story isn't really known. You know, it's, it's an echoey chamber and the sound bellows throughout the chamber. There are two funnels you know, in one half of the chamber, and perhaps their purpose was to direct the sound up into the house or to echo it back out the doors into the landscape. So I suppose in, in a little part of my mind, I'm thinking that this is a huge speaker, you know, and you just turn the volume up on the sound of, a, of an orchestra so that it can be cast across the whole property. I don't know, you know, it's not something that I can say, actually, this is definitely used for this, but I love the sense of mystery. 
It's not a space that the National Trust have known about forever. It wasn't until 2012 that they discovered it as part of another restoration project. And it does appear on an inventory in 1849 that describes it as a sounding room. So it must have been used for some amazing recitals and amazing parties and used to echo the sound up into this towering building that stands above it. To help really imagine what this sounding chamber might have been used for, in 2016, the National Trust commissioned a sound artist, Robin Rimbaud, also known as Scanner, to recreate some of those historic sounds in this chamber. It must have been magnificent. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I take the toast. To her great and glorious majesty, Queen The Astors were not only socialites, Cliveden was not merely a party place. I've just arrived in a very special part of Cliveden to meet Stephen Acourt, who's got some really interesting stories to share with me about Cliveden's rather surprising role in the First World War. Hi Stephen, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, and I'm lovely to meet you here today. Stephen, so what brought you to volunteer at Cliveden or with the National Trust? Well, it's an interesting because I've done so many things over the last few years, five years to to be precise, but I first found myself up here as a visitor. I live locally and I saw a notice um, on the notice board near the information centre that was looking for people who wanted to volunteer to be a charcoal maker. Now, as a latent bonfire and barbecue specialist, this was right (laughs) up my street. So I joined the um, charcoal making team, which is all here on site from cutting the trees down, cutting them up, putting them in the kiln, producing the charcoal and actually has um, sold um, you know, from the information centre, so a completely homegrown product. Those little bags I saw down at the information centre, made by volunteers here? They're made by volunteers here. No longer me, I've moved on from that. I've tended to migrate more towards sort of uh, historical research. I'm currently involved in a project which is involved going to Reading University. The Astor Archive is held at Reading University in the Museum of English Rural Life, and it's in there that there are all sorts of records that relate to the generator house. That's a, it's a, building, a derelict building on site, built in about 1895, um, in line with the Victorian trend to have self-generation of electricity in English country houses. And maybe this time next year we'll see a generator house, not generating electricity here, but refurbished as maybe a new visitor space. It's great to be here. Now, I'm, I'm intrigued because over your shoulder there's this magnificent space in quite, I suppose, off-the-beaten-track part of Cliveden, and I'm hoping that you can share its background and its stories with us. Yeah, I'd love to. As I understand it, the, 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 the starting point was the establishment of a hospital. The Astors wanted to do something for the war effort. They were both in politics um, and they had all this land and they wanted to do something. They had this indoor tennis court, which is on the other side of the estate, and it still exists today. And they offered it to the British authorities in the first instance to be a hospital. I think the intention was it was going to be something like a 110-bed hospital. Um, And the Canadian Red Cross took up the opportunity to um, invest in that tennis court and converted into a hospital for the First World War.
it was quite a successful hospital in the sense that the mortality rate was not particularly high. And I don't think necessarily all of the soldiers that died are buried here, but I believe quite a number of them are. I mean, they all that are buried here did die here. I suppose the first thing, you, you know, you come around that corner and the first thing you, you sense is, is the difference between the woodland walk that we've just been on and yeah. the level of care and maintenance you know the grass is perfectly clipped and the, the each each headstone is is immaculately yeah. presented and edged yeah. and and it's it's like this oval shape and it feels as if it's been cut into the bank and it's got like rustic rock and ivy i would draw your attention to the statue there of, of the lady um, a statue which was commissioned by nancy astor some say it's born in her own image sort of her if you will looking over these graves is the, the sort of interpretation yeah, of it looking after them yeah well, should we should we go down the steps yeah sure Stephen, you described wonderfully the, the statue that we're looking at, and she's in the sunshine at the moment, you know, overlooking the graves that we can see in the garden, and it's a very peaceful spot, and you, you said that she was possibly made in the likeness of Nancy herself, but, I mean, that, that for me has raised a question, you know, about Nancy's role in, in all of this. She was keen, she, I think she's undoubtedly she was very keen to do her piece and offer part of her obviously extensive property, uh, to be this hospital in the First World War. And she visited it regularly. And she talked to the men and she went round and it is said in the records that, you know, she really sort of uplifted their their spirit and their moral. And, um, you know, in in a hard but fair way, you know, told them to sort of shape up and get on with it. But, but at the same time, you know, it was I think it was thought to be a very happy hospital, if that's such as possible in the First World War. Today has been an amazing day. Cliveden is a truly beautiful garden. It's also brimming with history. I mean, to think this is where the Perfumo affair all kicked off. That pivotal scandal that contributed to the defeat of the then Prime Minister and changed the way the British public thought about authority forever. And what about Nancy Astor? What a character she must have been. And the sounding chamber, that really is a feast for the imagination and the senses. What a treat. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. For more information about Cliveden, you can visit their website at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Cliveden. And to learn more about the full range of podcasts at the National Trust, go to nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. For our next full episode, which will be live at the end of the month, I'll be in Stowe exploring the hidden meanings of the incredible landscape gardens. But don't worry, there will be a mini episode available next week. We'll be going behind the scenes at Cliveden with one of our National Trust volunteers, Josh Turner, and also exploring some fascinating, creepy stories associated with the Astors.